you're not my boss. You're not my boss. It's something we hear often in our house. It's not your business. That's my favorite line. That's not your business. Like, you're not my boss. You're not in charge of me. We have four little kids. This isn't my wife and I going back and forth, right? These are our children. Uh, We hear it all the time. Why do we hear this? Because our kids are reminding the other kids that you're not in authority of me. You don't have the authority to do this. Forget you lights. I don't want you anyway. <laughs> I have something up there I can go to if I... No? So that whole... Uh... Man, this is really neat. This is a privilege. I'm not coming back here. I'm not. I refuse to. I'm coming back with you guys. Uh... So, uh, what was I talking about? Th- throwing children on sick beds or something. Uh, no, you're not my boss. You're not my boss. So this idea is that my kids want to figure out who has authority and, and what they have authority of and, and all of that. And, and if we're honest, we say the same types of things. We just don't say, you're not my boss. You know, we, we, we say things like, you don't have the right to say that to me. Who are you or who do they think they are? And we usually don't say it to people because we're passive aggressive in nature, but the reality is that we're trying to figure out who actually has authority in our life and who can speak into our life and who can cause us to change, right? And so what we have from Jesus in these letters to these seven churches is he brings encouragement, but he also brings rebuke. All but two uh, get rebuke, and we, we deal with the church here in Thyatira, Theatira, however you want to say it. Uh, we deal with Jesus rebuking this church. Now, this church, really simple, is a blue-collar, urban. I don't know if that word exists, but I, I wanted to make it up. So a urban where it's, it's a lot of people that are gathering together in this place, but they're very much rural mentality. These are country folk who all of a sudden ended up in this place because their trades came together. So they're becoming a city, but it's very rural, blue-collar, very insignificant. Okay, so you have to hear this. This place is insignificant to the world's standards. Just didn't matter. These people didn't matter. Their opinions didn't matter. Nothing. So they're in this little place where the church a few years before didn't exist. Now the church does exist, all right? And we'll talk about how that happened during the sermon. But then they receive this letter from Jesus, right? Jesus sends you a letter. Whoa. I remember being a kid. I got a letter from uh, George H.W. Bush because I wrote him something like in crayon, congratulations, and, and I got this little picture back, and I, I was convinced that he wrote it to me. My parents were like, no, they have people that do that. I'm like, no, I think he wrote it. Took time out of his busy schedule to write me something, but that was significant, and so they're getting a letter from Jesus, right? Getting a letter from Jesus, and Jesus begins like a good preacher begins with Jesus. There's something called indicative imperative, Okay. Um, oftentimes we believe that the Christian faith is an imperative. Here are the rules you need to follow. Here are the things you need to do. Just get on with it. These are the imperatives. You should do this. You shouldn't do this. But Jesus never starts that way. He always starts with the indicative, meaning this is who I am. This is what I've done. And because of that, this is how you can live. I freed you to be able to live like this. Don't live like this to earn my approval, my attention, my affection. You already have it. 
because of what I've done. So now you're free to actually go and live these things out. It's an amazing thing as a child to know that your parents approve of you, love you, give you affection, because you're not living for their approval any longer. You already have it. You're living life. They're disciplining you, helping you figure out life. Good parent disciplines their kids so that their kids live, right? We want them to keep living. And so this is what God does. It's what God does. He, he disciplines us as, as, his, as his people, and this is what this letter is about. It's a letter of love and kindness, but also discipline. And so what gives Jesus the right? What gives him the right? Now, I'm kind of doing this blindly this morning. There we go. Revelation 2.18. Look at Jesus here. Okay, Revelation 2.18 says this. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. That's awesome. Son of God. This is a title that emperors would give to themselves. I am the Son of God. I descended from this God. They would usually attribute something to Venus, which we'll talk about at the very end. But an emperor would walk around feeling very good about themselves. I, I, am, I have a reputation. I have power. I have authority. I am the son of God, right? Listen to me. I have authority. Now we have Jesus saying to this church, no, I'm the son of God. I'm the true son of God. You think Caesar has authority? All the authority Caesar has been given to him by me, right? I'm the one with all authority. I'm going to speak in to the realities of what is going on. I have all authority. Second, fire eyes. Fire eyes. Eyes that are like fire. That Jesus sees the minds and hearts of, of this group, this church. He understands their proclivities and what in their thinking. He understands where they're moving and their desires. He knows what's going on. It's like his stare penetrates their soul. Have you ever had anyone look at you like that? Super creepy. Super creepy, right? When they, you just want to break eye contact because you're like, I feel like they're downloading my entire soul contents right now into them. It's wild. And Jesus is staring at us, not with the creepy penetrating soul look, but with, with that of, of compassion, of care, of knowledge, of understanding what you're going through. And this is a letter written to the church, right? So it's not just the city. It's the church, the people who are, who are following Jesus. And the last thing is he has these, these feet of burnished bronze. What's interesting is that in Theatira, Thyatira, they had, uh, bronze was very important for them. One of their important guilds was that of, of bronze. And they were one of the only places in the world to make burnished bronze. And so can you imagine, you get this letter from Jesus and he's wearing your products. Right? How much more contextual can you get than that? Jesus says, I love what's happening here so much so that I'm going to represent myself in such a way that my feet are like the product that you are making. My feet are like the product that is carrying so much of the economy of what you are doing in this city. But it's still an insignificant city. And so what we see is Jesus presents himself as the son of God, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze. He's looking at this insignificant people saying, you're not insignificant. You're significant to me. You're significant to me. So it doesn't matter what you do for a job. It doesn't matter your economical place. It doesn't matter your sociodemographic part in society. None of this matters. In Jesus, when he's looking at this church, he's saying, you're so significant to me. 
I'm, I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'm here to, to write some of the courses that you're heading down, which is going to bring you to death. So Jesus says to this insignificant place, this insignificant people, you're significant to me. You're significant to me. He says to us this morning, you're significant to me. We're significant to him. Isn't that amazing? The son of God, true authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, his. And he says to this little gathering that can't figure out lights, you're significant to me. So, so the juxtaposing question is, is, is he significant to you? Because Jesus is going to say some very hard things in this text to this church, and, and I believe applies to us and to the church in our city and this province and nation. So if he's significant to us, then are we willing to listen to him this morning? Because I think that these, these commendations are for us, but also these warnings are for us. So will you listen to him? Will you listen? Will you not just check out because some of these things are really hard and, and might challenge a lot of your views? So here we go. 219. Is it up there? Amazing. I'm not even looking back. Yes, I am. Uh, 219 says this. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So Jesus commends them. He commends their growth, and this is organic growth. We're going to talk about organic stuff this morning. Very exciting, amazing. So Jesus commends the organic growth that's taking place. They're growing in faith. They're dependent on who Jesus is and what he's done, the indicative that we talked about. They love that. The imperatives of, of love and service are coming out of, of their lives being rooted and anchored in Jesus. It's not to earn a place with him. It's because I already have a place with you. It's not to earn love. It's I'm taking the love that you're giving to me and giving it away to my city. And Jesus says the latter works, the ones you're doing right now, they're better than when you started. There's significant organic growth that's taking place. This is not religious rules at work. This is a church that is planting their life in him planting their life in him. In John, John wrote the book of Revelation. John also wrote a biography of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, um, very creatively entitled John, okay? And so in that book of John, John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I want for you to abide in me. That word abide means move into. I want for you to not just stay on the outskirts. I want for you to move into me. This, this doctrine or teaching of union with Christ being in Christ. I want you to move into me. Not just know about me as an example, as a prophet, as a teacher, but I want to be your rescuer and your king. So I want for the trajectory of your life to be one where you actually move into me. Plant your tree. Put your roots down in the soil of who I am. This is who we were made to be. We were made to derive all of our nourishment holistically from the organic source of Jesus. In the book of Psalms, which is a book in the Old Testament, it says this. I'm going to do this thing. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. I have this neat thing too. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. There it is. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, it prospers. This is what Jesus is talking about. That when you plant the roots of your life into him, the fruit that comes is because of him. Jesus uses this illustration in John 15 about a vine and branches. He says, you, we are the branches. He is the vine. We don't lay on the ground as branches and say, hey, vine, would you pick me up and put me into you? Let me show you how good of a dead branch I can be. Not that. Jesus takes us and grafts us in to his vine. And this is where we find our value, meaning, and purpose. We're all looking for it. You're all looking for something, whether it be in money, whether it be in appearance, thanks Grace for sharing that before, Uh, whether it be in control, whether it be in power, whether it be in authority, whether it be in making it, whether it be in the I love you coming from your parent, we're all looking and searching for an identity. I watched this documentary uh, called Minimalism uh, this past week. I couldn't sleep. So did you say so good? Okay, I disagree. Here's why. Here's why. Um... Because they're, they're walking like these guys who have made it, okay? They've made it, and they have all this stuff. And here's the good news for them. Stuff is bad. I'm just going to get rid of the stuff and live on what I need. And so here's what I saw, okay? This is why I disagree with you, Grace. Um, so thankful for reading and sharing your story this morning, by the way. Um, did a great job. Um, is that there was just a different good news for them. Before, it was good news to get stuff, But now the good news was, we're not going to have stuff. And so I I ended by watching it saying, they just switched gods. And they were traveling around in this tour, basically, actually they use the word evangelizing, uh, evangelizing about this, this new way of living, which I think is great in juxtaposition to crazy materialism, but they're still looking for meaning. They're still looking for value. They're still just as empty. They just don't have as much stuff. That's what was sad to me. Because we weren't made for stuff or to have lack of stuff. We were made to take the roots of our lives and to push them into the soil of who Jesus is. To let the river of his gospel, which I'll look at in a second too, nourish us, cause us to grow, that the growth isn't on our own. It's not us patting ourselves on the back. It's him doing all the work in growing us. This was a people, a church, becoming like Jesus. Loving. I mean, your ideal neighbor, what would it be? Other than leave me alone. Um, Ideal neighbor would be someone who loves us, someone who serves us in non-awkward, soul-penetrating, staring ways. Um, and who will endure with us through whatever we're going through. Like, who wouldn't want that person as a neighbor? Love, serve, endure. This was the church for that city. They were being like Jesus in that city. There was organic kingdom of God. That's what Jesus spoke about. Kingdom of God. Breaking into this world and taking over. Through love serving, and enduring. The way that we say it here at Church 21 is that we want to be a family of servants on mission to live like Jesus. We don't do it perfectly. We we mess up all the time. But that's what we want, and that's Jesus' desire for his people, to move into the city like that, to be a family of servants on mission. The city wants this type of church. 
How do I know that? Well, because when I talk to people about what the church really is, and I explain to him, imagine a people situated in a city very strategically to love people, to give away their lives in service, and to endure, to stay in that city. Regardless what happens, we're not leaving. Whether the bubonic plague comes again, we're here. We're, we're rooted. This is, what, this is what happened in Christianity in the early church was that the Christians stayed in some of these cities where everyone was leaving because of the sickness, but Christians were dying. Why? Our, life is, our lives are rooted into the soil of Jesus. We already have all the life that we need. Let's care for the sick. Let's care for the dying. It doesn't matter that it's going to cost our life. We've already found it in him. When I tell people about that church, they're like, man, we need a church like that in the city. I'm like, but you don't believe in God. They're like, I know. But we need a church like that in this city. And I said, do you know that that's Jesus' vision for the church? That's what Jesus has for his people. Not to get together only on Sunday with lights that function most of the time and, you know, a warm place. Although at one point it was very cold in here a few years ago. That was a funner day maybe. No, no. We've had all kinds of fun times in here. But the Lord's vision for the church is that we would find our life in Jesus and then give our lives away. Simple. Find our life in Jesus. Give our lives away. You know what's interesting, though? People loved having Jesus around, right? People say, oh, that's the church we need in our city. Awesome. I agree. Um, people loved having Jesus around, right? They, they really did. When he was there to heal people and take care of people and, you know, give them uh, a meal, by multiplying loaves. They liked having the guy who could walk across water. But do you know when they didn't like Jesus? When he was against what they were about. When what they were defining their lives by, when he started railing against that. Jesus was very much about the organic kingdom of God breaking in. And when they wanted to add their chemicals in. Ah, oh, Jesus, this is a good idea too. Peter. Peter said, Jesus, Jesus was talking to his disciples. He said, I need to go to the cross. I need to go die. Peter says, no, you're not going to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're adding chemicals into what the Lord is trying to do. You're adding chemicals into this redemption of, of humanity, of mankind, a reconciling of all things together. You're getting in the way of that. And, and we so often do that. We introduce good ideas, maybe good ideas. We introduce chemicals into this organic movement that Jesus began. So people loved Jesus around until he said, get rid of your, chemical, your chemicals. Chemicals ruin organic. Another documentary I watched several years ago, and they were talking about what they were injecting into chickens. And I'm like, wait a second. They inject these hormones and steroids into chickens, and then I go ahead and like feed that 4,000-pound chicken Right? How did a little chicken, like, you know, get triceps? No idea. Um, but I'm going to feed the triceps to my children, right? And be like, oh, no, this is all good. It's, it's meat. It's protein, right? I'm like, I might as well just, like, all right, bend over, steroid shot today, boom. Hormones. I know you weren't trying to be like this, but here you go, right? Like, oh, and this isn't my condemnation. We buy non-organic chicken, but it's like, oh, man, this is, and I feel judged by some of you right now. I do. I feel that. I, I rebuke that, like I'm not listening to it at all. I'm up here for goodness sakes, okay? I'm more comfortable there, leave me alone. Um, but this idea that, that we would inject things into our kids, it's crazy. 
Why do we do chemicals? Because it's quicker, easier, and it makes more sense with the economy. And that's what we do with the church. How do we make this quicker, bigger, better, faster, and more in line with what the world looks like? Because when I talk about the church in all of its fullness, people say, I don't know if I want that. So I say, oh, okay, well, could say, how do I change these things so that it would be more palatable for you? But I forget that up until 14 years ago, it wasn't palatable for me. Something changed in my understanding of what the church really was and who Jesus was. You see, chemicals ruin the organic. They change the product. No longer is that a chicken. It's someone competing for like the strongest man competition. No longer is that apple a real apple. It's full of pesticides. No longer is that banana a banana. It's full of these chemicals, right? We're constantly changing the product, and we do that within the church as well. Because people say the church is outdated. Ah, the church preaching. Preaching from the Bible, ah, that's not going to impact anyone. Right? The church is so outdated in some of your views about sexuality and sex and, and whatever, almost anything, right? Ah, they're so outdated. But here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus isn't a fashion. Minimalism said that there's no longer four seasons. There's constant seasons in the fashion world. So that you and I live like materialists that constantly need new clothes to wear. But Jesus isn't fashionable. He's never been fashionable. But he's what our, our hearts long for. Why? Because he's the fashioner of us. He made us. He made us for him. He made our longings for him so that nothing else could satisfy us except him. And so though Jesus isn't fashionable, he's as relevant as ever, because everything you're pursuing is really you looking for him. This gospel is organic. Gospel means good news. Gospel is the, the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. His death being for you, not just the collective you, but the individual you. That Jesus went, was brutally killed. For you, I remember when the Passion of the Christ came out, brand new Christian at that time, and one of my uh, social work professors said to me, oh, I'm not going to go and see that because it's, it's too horrific. And I said, do you know the theology going on underneath that? Like, brand new follower of Jesus. She's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, that wasn't just a horrific act. That was your sin on, like, I got all preachy, right? And people love that, right? Preach, please, preach to me. Um, but I'm like, that was your sin. That was my sin. The gruesomeness there and the horrificness of all of what was the cross is to show us how nasty our sin really is and the high price that had to be paid so that you and I could be free. Uh, I have a tattoo that says free. Got it done by a tattoo artist in Portland, Maine, and it went in. Uh, my wife was looking to get her nose pierced again. I think that was number two or three. Uh, it was nice. It was beautiful. And so we went in to do that, and I saw that the guy had, had free right there. And I said, ah, oh, I've been wanting to get a tattoo like that. I said, what does freedom mean for you? And he talked about his, his alcohol and addictions. And I said, okay, I'm going to come back, and I want that tattoo, and I want to explain to you what this means to me. And so when I understood 14 years ago, 
about Jesus living a perfect life that I can't live. And that Jesus still put the demands on me to live a perfect life, that, that broke me. That brought me to the end of myself. I can't do it. I can't be perfect. I can't follow all of what the Bible is telling me I need to follow. I can't. But then I understood that Jesus did all that for me. He played this game for me. He lived this life for me so that I could be free, so that we could be free. And his death on the cross means that my rebellion against God has been paid for. It's done. And the resurrection means that it's not just about worshiping and hoping that a dead guy's philosophy on life was right. It's about that he's alive now and he's ministering life to us. And he came to me on December 23rd, late at night, and it was like he broke into my house, convinced me all of this stuff was true, and all I wanted was him. It was this crazy thing that took place. And not everyone's experience or belief um, journey is like that. But I grew up with all this stuff. I had it all. And it was like, boom, all at once. Oh, this makes sense. Jesus came for messed up people like me. Not to tell me I need to live a perfect life, but to take his perfect life. To take his perfect death. And to follow this resurrected God who is now my king. This is the raw, organic gospel. Having a better space is not going to make the church grow. Having lights is not going to make the church grow. Having sound or no sound is not going to make the church grow. Having a better dressed pastor or less better dressed pastor, not going to make the church grow. The only thing that's going to make the church grow in the kingdom of God, take root in this world, is this gospel. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's it. There's no fancy message. That's it. But that's enough. And there's no message that will outlast that. The book of Ephesians, a letter written to a church in Ephesus from a guy named Paul, says that we're going to keep exploring this good news for eternity. So it's not like, yeah, 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 Dwight, I, I've come several times. I've heard you talk about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. What else? No, that's it. And it's this that changes all of life. It's this that we root our identity. No longer do I need to find approval. I have it all in God. No longer do I need to find comfort. I have it all in Jesus. No longer do I need control. I have the Son of God who has all control. No longer do I need to fight for power because the one who's all powerful is for me and his spirit now dwells within me. I am free. I'm really free. That's the story I told to the tattoo artist that day. He's like, that's way different than mine. I'm like, yeah. But you can be more free. You can experience true freedom. And so Jesus rebukes the church for the chemicals that are being added because they're trying to be more than just Jesus' life, death, resurrection, tell people about that, serve the city, love the city, endure. They're trying to be more. They're trying to be clever. And so here's, here's this verse, Revelation 2.20. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. You're letting this Jezebel pour ammonia in the stream. You're letting her shoot up everyone with the hormones and, and steroids. You're letting her change everything 
Now, do you know Jezebel? I'm assuming you don't, because I'm going to tell you. Uh, Jezebel's symbolic. Uh, it probably wasn't the name of the person that was doing this, but when they mentioned who this was, they would have said, ah, yes, we know who this is. So Jezebel would have been symbolic. She was literally the wife of a guy named King Ahab, ninth century king of Israel, okay, the people of God. And her wonderful role was that she led the people of God away from God. She led the people of God away from God and into spiritual adultery. Anything was fine with her. Sexual immorality, do whatever you want. Sexual immorality is like kind of a junk drawer term for all things outside of God's boundary for sex and sexuality. So it's like anything goes here. Like we'll take God and have all of these other things. So this Jezebel was poisoning what was taking place in the ninth century. And this, the same ideas are now poisoning this community in Thyatira. This Jezebel is seducing the community. Maybe she was wealthy. Maybe she was powerful, right? And so if you get a wealthy, powerful person inside of your church, you're like, I don't know if I want to mess with them because they leave. Where are we going to host things? They're going to take money. They're going to take people. It's going to be a big mess. They might speak poorly about us to the city. This is not going to be good. So I could imagine being church leadership weighing all of this out, right? How do we deal with this? And Jesus is saying, you tolerate her. You tolerate her, and you're letting her speak as a prophetess, which means someone who speaks on behalf of God. You're letting people think that I might be saying this, and I'm not okay with this. I'm not for this at all. In fact, I'm, I'm against her and against this whole teaching. And we'll see how against Jesus is in just a second. But in essence, they're letting her draw people away from Jesus and draw them to themselves by focusing them on three things, food, body, and sex. Food, body, and sex. There's just so much of our, our attention goes towards these things. So much of our marketing and advertising is food, body, and sex. And it's not a new 21st century reality. It was the same back then. And so the lie that Jezebel was, was telling this church, whoever this was, is that God is keeping you from doing you. Right? Don't you love that phrase? You do you. Right? Just here's permission. Do whatever you want. There's a, a wonderful book that just came out that I didn't even look at because I'm like, I know it's going to be in that. That's called You Do You. And it's basically like save your money. Don't buy it. It's do whatever you want. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do these things. And this is what Jezebel is saying to the church. You can have Jesus as your savior. Let him rescue you, but not your Lord. He's not your king. You do you. You do you. What a wonderful message. How freeing that message is. Some of the arguments would go like this. And I'm going to be quick on this. The argument is very platonic that the body is bad, spirit is good. The body has needs. Ah, I want to have sex. Therefore, because the body is bad, the body is going to be done away with. It's just matter. Just go ahead and meet the needs of your body. It doesn't impact your spirit. It wasn't a holistic approach that what you do with your body also impacts your spirit and your soul. So go ahead and do whatever you want with your body. That's going to be done away with. 
The interesting thing, though, is that when Jesus came, what happened? He took a body. When Jesus rose from the dead, what happened? He's in a body. So that reasoning is saying, oh, so Jesus is bad. But inside, somewhere in his spirit, that's good. No, it breaks down at that level. But the reality is that the body and the spirit are both sick. It's not that the spirit's good, the body's bad. They're both sick. But Jesus' work on the cross that I spoke about can heal the body and the spirits. Heals the body and the spirits. The body is good. It's a good thing. Our desires and appetites are often good. We just, we just meet them often the wrong way. We just take care of them in the wrong manner. But we've been given, when, when we're redeemed, which means to be bought, purchased, when we're purchased by Jesus as his children, we receive his spirit. The spirit is fighting for what's best. The spirit is fighting against that junk drawer of spiritual or sexual immorality. The spirit is fighting against you doing you because you leads to death. Jesus leads to life. So my, my book deal, which I'm hoping for, is don't do you, right? That won't sell anything. Probably not, my kids won't even read it, but, right? Don't do you. You lead to death. Your rebellious actions against God is what brought death into the world. Don't just treat Jesus like an a la carte. Oh, I'll take some savior here, but move over here and I'll take my lordship of whatever I want to do. Sexual immorality, that's mine. Jesus, you keep your saving over there. Thanks for freeing me, forgiving me, but I'm going to be lord of this. That's garbage. Absolute garbage. And the thing that really angers me is that that's being taught in churches here in Montreal. Maybe this morning. Jesus, Jesus rescues you. He's like a little lamb that comes and just wants to be pet once in a while. But you go ahead and you flourish the way that you need to compartmentalize your life. We're never going to actually deal with the, the sexuality and sex that, that is, is rampant and moving inside of the church, right? Let's just not talk about it and, and expect that everyone's just going to know what they're supposed to do. But we separate these two. And we say, ah, oh, if we talk about this piece, then people won't want to be saved by Jesus. And I say, oh, we have to talk about this piece because people need to be saved by Jesus for this and Jesus needs to be the leader of their life over these areas because Jesus wants you to have better sex than you want. That's amazing. It's really weird in premarital counseling when we get to the last session, session number seven, and we talk about sex. It's my favorite topic to talk about. Um, but we get to that and, and I say, do you know that Jesus wants for you to worship him by how you have sex. And it's like squirming. It's like, oh, you, you forgot that whole idea of Jesus being present all the time everywhere. Oh, yeah, he's there. Um, and by the way that you serve one another in having sex, you're bringing him glory. And they're like, this is really weird. And I'm like, yeah, you're not being theological about your sex life. Like, let me, let me theo theologize, making up words. Let me theologize you in that, Right? that Jesus has the best say. And unfortunately, what we've done, this is how I live most of my life until meeting Jesus, right, is, is I said, no, I have really good ideas. I have great ideas. I have this feeling inside my bones. It goes electric, baby. Yeah, no, see, that, that song goes bad right there, right? But that was, that was the worldview. 
Justin Timberlake, always in my mind, right? Always there. Um, but that we just do what we want to do. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Now I'm going old school, Sheryl Crow. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, then why the hell are you so sad? Right? It makes you happy, why are you sad? If you're doing you, why aren't you satisfied? Why are some of the most hedonistic people I know empty? Because the way that we're doing me, the way that we're following Jezebel isn't producing life. It's just surfacing more shame, guilt, condemnation. And so we turn back to Jesus, 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 rescue me. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to try it again. And, and it's this pattern. Jesus, Savior, me, Lord. What Jesus wants for the church to understand is that I'm, I'm Lord over sexuality and sex. We don't have time to get into all of this this morning. But if a church isn't addressing sex and sexuality, they're not a church that's relevant. If a church is saying any, any way you want to have sex, any sexuality, anything you want to do, just do it. They are saying we don't give a damn what happens to you. And I say that intentionally because that's damnable advice. It's saying, you go ahead and hold on to your identity. We're just so glad you're here. Man, we have a church roof to focus on. Uh, we have this building we got to keep up. And if you leave, if I address what's going on in your heart and I show you a better thing, although I don't know if I believe it's a better thing, if I address this and you're probably going to leave, and I want you to stay because I want to cuddle and hold hands in a circle and sing kumbaya and just all be really, really happy that we all kind of agree on who Jesus is. And Jesus says, I have eyes like a flame of fire. I see your intentions and I'm coming after you. You're not my church. You're not my people. Wow. I like cuddly lamb, Jesus. But Jesus isn't coming back as a cuddly lamb. He's coming back like a lion. He's coming back for his people, to bring his people to be with himself. But he's coming back to devour those who are against him. So what I prayed for us this morning is that we wouldn't be a church that would shy away from speaking about sex and sexuality and all the things that are very confusing but that we would be a church that would lean into them, talk about them, address them, and then present Jesus, who gives us a better identity than any of those other things can actually give us. I want to say to you, if you're here this morning and you have questions about your sexuality, let me say sexuality is not the deepest identity that you can find. You are not defined by who you're attracted to or who you have sex with. That Jesus says, I know what you've done, I know your works, I know you're a rebel, and I want you to come into my family. I want to rescue you. I want to change you. And I want to call you family, which is a far deeper identity than sexuality is. And because you're part of my family, this is your family. And you're like, I don't know if I want this to be my family. And it gets bigger and even stranger than this, right? Uh, our family is very, very big. Our family is very broad. But now you belong and you have people that are saying, 
we love you. And you say, yeah, but I'm struggling with this and this and this. And they're like, okay, well, let's, let's do that together. Let's struggle through that together. We don't have people that sit in a judgment seat saying, ah, you can come in, ah, you're out, in, out. We don't have that. Jesus is the great judge. We just want to tell people about, about Jesus. And it's a teaching of Jezebel that gets in that will be extremely confusing because it's not actually what God is about. But sex is actually amazing. Sex is amazing within the boundary that God has set for it. But like anything, when you use sex outside of the boundary that God has set for it, it can become destructive. And I've I've talked with so many people who their lives have just been destroyed by this philosophy of you do you in relation to sex. But there's so much freedom. There's so much freedom for you inside of Jesus. Man, I have four sermons up here, I think. The, the church has offered a choice. In Revelation 2, 21 and 23, I gave her time. I gave her time uh, to repent, to turn from her evil and turn back to me, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. So there's this choice. There's this choice we have that we can continue on in that vein. Be like, no, Jesus is Savior, great. We're going to do us as a church. We're going we're gonna to love the chemicals. We're going to eat them up, yellow five all day long, amazing. We're going to do that. Or we're going to turn from that. We're going to say, no, we want the true, the raw, organic Jesus. We want him. And so this is our choice. Jesus says, remove her or I'll remove you. You don't get to be my church declaring, oh, we're, we're God's people. We're doing this but then lift up this. That's not what I'm about. You don't get to say that. So remove her or I remove you. Jezebel has to go because that's the voice of the enemy. We believe there's an enemy. We believe in Satan. We believe in demons. We believe in lies. If you don't, if you don't, I I would encourage you to read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Fictitious book based on realities. Read the Screw Tape Letters and, and let's talk about whether demons... And Satan still exists. But Jesus' thing is, she must go. She must go. You need to repent as a church. Turn from pursuing that. Turn from pursuing you doing you and turn back to me. And as you turn, I want for you to take a burden. Jesus is saying, I want you to take a burden onto yourself. I love the burdens that Jesus gives to us. He says, I want for you to take the burden of joy and pleasure. Many people don't associate joy and pleasure with God. They also don't connect joy and pleasure with, with the church. Saying, like, man, I got up early to be here. Not that much joy, not that much pleasure. You're not even lit up. What am I doing here, right? But Jesus says, I want for you to take on the burden of joy and pleasure in me. He says it in, in verse 24 and 25. Repent, but here it is. But to the rest of you, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold on to him. 
hold on to him. But holding on to him comes at a cost. It means that all the other appetites that you have, you're going to starve so that you hold on to him. Let me give you this example. How many of you like steaks? I do. Great. So uh, ribeye steaks, one of my favorite things in the world. Primer is even better, but I don't know how to cook it well. So I eat ribeyes, right? We can afford it. Um, do you know how to ruin a ribeye? How do you ruin a ribeye? Come on. I'm up here. I'm, I'm participating with you. How do you ruin a ribeye? You bo- yeah, don't boil it, right? Definitely don't boil it. I didn't even think of that. What's another way? For- yeah, okay. I was so expecting you to say ketchup. So, uh, so ketchup. My wife said it first shot last night. I'm like, how do you ruin a rib- ribeye? She said, put ketchup on it. I'm like, oh, you're my love. You're my love. Like, we think we're one flesh. It's amazing. But what do kids love to do? Put freaking corn syrup, red tomato, not even tomato, like on anything. You know, you give them this beautiful rabbi, ribeye, rabbi, rabbi. You give them this, this ribeye, word games. You give them this ribeye, and they put ketchup on it. And you're like, no, trying to like stop it. Like, and, and you can't. And so you, you remove the filth from your house and you don't let it back in. But they miss, they miss the taste of this raw, organic, beautiful meat that needs to be cooked medium rare. And it, it melts. It just melts. It, it really is a worshipful experience. I'm not joking. Like, I'm being serious. Like, like watch, me, watch me eat a ribeye. <laughs> it's like, mm, all the things I can't stand about other people. If you eat with me and you make noise, oh, I'm angry inside. Just know. Like, chewing chips next to me, can't stand it. But if you eat a ribeye with me, I'm going to freak you out probably because it's just so good. What has to happen for kids to like ribeye? They need to starve their appetites for what they're used to. They need to remove the corn syrup garbage that's red that they try and put on there. And this is how we find the beauty of Jesus because you say, yeah, but sex feels so good. Food feels so good. How can I just give that up or do that in this manner? How can Jesus be more than that or better than that? But the thing is, you've never tried it. Jonathan Edwards, this great theologian from the uh, 18th century, has this beautiful analogy about honey. And he says, I can tell you all about honey, but until you taste it, you don't know what that actually tastes like. And so you hear maybe, ah, man, the church is so frigid and rigid on, on, on sex and sexuality. I'm like, no, 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 God thought of it. It was his idea. He's, he's for sex. He really is. But he wants it to be done in the way that he's placed a boundary for so that it's, it's safe. There's trust that's built into this. And you say, I, I, don't, I don't believe this. And, and you're going to have to starve your appetite for the other so that you can actually taste who he is and that he's good. It comes at a cost. When Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me, that's what it means. You're going to have to deny the way that you thought this was going to taste. You're going to have to trust me that this is far better. That We starve our appetites for chemicals. We believe, even in the unbelief, the promises that he is better. Hear that. We believe, even in our moments of unbelief, that he is better than what we want to pursue. And so we hold fast to him. 
We hold fast to him, and we, we fight with the promises. And I'll end with this. Let me skip a few. I'll end with, with this promise. Jesus says, the one who, who overcomes, the one who endures, um, I will give him or her the morning star. The morning star. This is contextual. The one who pursues me doesn't follow Jezebel, but is all about me and holds fast. The one who overcomes, I will give him, her, the morning star. The morning star was a symbol. It was Venus. It was a symbol of, of sovereignty in the ancient world. The emperors claimed to have descended from Venus to show that they had authority. Temples were built to this star on, on Roman standards that the legions would have them on their, on their standards, right? That we are all about this symbol of sovereignty of Venus. And now Jesus says, I am the true morning star. I am the sovereign one. I am the true authority. I am the one that's saying Jezebel is bogus. Remove her and seek me. Seek me. No chemicals to be added. In church, church 21, There'll be lots of chemicals that are offered to the church. Ah, just bring this in. This is what you're missing. It's Jesus plus this. This will be much better. Chemicals will be added. They will be. There's not going to be a lack of sirens, right? Think Greek mythology. Sirens crying out. But what did the sirens do? They lured the ships towards destruction. And so what we have the opportunity to do, church, and it's going to be a fight, Church 21 means the church of the 21st century. Same God, Jesus, church, Bible, but dealing with the realities of the 21st century. So here's how we have to approach our world. First in love and service and enduring, but like this, that Jesus is the mast that we are tied to by the gospel. Right? Jesus is the mast that we're tied to by the gospel. Because Greek sailors, they, they would... They would steer their ships toward this beautiful sound and beautiful everything, but it would be towards destruction. So they would tie themselves to the mast, and the sailors then would plug their ears so that they couldn't hear the songs. And so we plug our ears with the truth that comes from God's word and from what his spirit says, and we trust him as we're tied to his mast, and our ears are full of his spirit, that what he is saying and leading us toward is what is best. Because oftentimes our instincts won't believe it. And so we need the community around us to say, no, you're leading yourself to destruction. Let me tie you to the mast. And don't hear this in a literal sense. We're not going to be bringing in a mast that people are tied to or stocks, all right? But we need to be tied to the mast, have our ears plugged so that we would trust the course that the Lord is actually bringing our ship towards. And that is him. And so church 21, what chemicals have you let into your life or what have we let into the life of the church that need to be removed this morning? Let's not wait. Let's remove them this morning. What are the sirens that need to be silenced? What are the inklings in your heart that say, oh yeah, Jesus is that nice cuddly lamb for me, but I'm really drawn toward this. So come on, lamb, let's go. What are the sirens that you need to destroy this morning? And as a church, what are the sirens that we need to silence this morning? And I mean, the simple application, it sounds really simple, but we need to be a church that listens to the Spirit of God. Like, Spirit, what do you want to say to us about Jesus and about our pursuits, so that we would leave our pursuits and see that Jesus is better 
And it might sound so simple, but that's as profound as it gets. That the Spirit wants to lead us towards life, toward value, meaning, and purpose that can only be found as we take the roots of our lives and sink them into the soil that is Jesus. It's not always comfy, cozy. It's never kumbaya. It's never happy, clappy, or not often that. But it's real life. And it's a life that never ends. And it's a life where we get to be with him for all of eternity. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond. Jesus, wow, so much, so many other things I thought we're going to talk about this morning, but you are the one that that is a true leader. So I believe that you led us into into all of these things. I pray um, for those who are here who might be confused that you would allow for them to acknowledge that and that they would seek out answers. Jesus, I thank you that you are the one that's truly in charge. You are the true morning star. Jesus, you're far better than any teaching that Jezebel would want to bring in to the church. And I pray you protect us as a church from uh, her teaching. I pray you protect us against ourselves. So often our instincts want to lead our ship into destruction. But when we hear from you, Holy Spirit, I really want for us as a church to hear from you this morning. I ask you to speak approval over your people. Let them know that what you, Father, said about Jesus is true of them, that this is my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. I pray, Spirit, that you would confront things that we're pursuing for comfort or in the name of I I need this I've always done this I can't imagine life without this would you help us to imagine not only life without that but life with you as Lord over that area Lord would you bring freedom spirit would you speak freedom not just from addictions but from addiction but the true freedom that we can have in you, Jesus. And so, Spirit, I I just want to leave a few minutes here for you to speak to us. So would you do that? We're going to wait. Would you minister to our hearts? Would you care for our hearts? As we think about giving this morning, all of the the money and resources we have, they're yours, Dad. You've, You've called us to steward them. Would we be generous so that more people in the city would know you? As we come to this table where, where bread and juice and wine sit and we take those of us who are followers of you, as we take what is symbolic of your body and, and dip it into what's symbolic of your, your blood that was shed for our freedom, and we eat it, we take it as this declaration of victory, that you are alive, you have done it, you have freed us, and we're consuming you, which means that we lose control over what happens, and we don't want control. As we realize that there are things wrong with us, things that aren't right, would you cause us to be humble enough to come and receive prayer from someone on the sides? And Holy Spirit, as you're speaking, 
Whatever it is that you're saying, would we move on that? Whether it's something to turn from, a huge decision that needs to be made, whether it's uh, an action, an, an attitude, uh, a response, whatever that is, would we respond to whatever you have for us today? Holy Spirit, you love to make Jesus the hero of everything. I thank you for this morning. Thank you that despite the lack of lights, despite all the weirdness uh, that was transpiring before, uh, even despite me, thank you that you speak. And thank you that you allow for us to respond. We love you and we need you.